Unloose the goose. We'll take no views. Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use. Unloose the goose. Hey out there, Goose Crew. Jack Spierko here, one of the gaggle. Just doing a little pre-intro uh, bit of audio for you for tonight's episode. Our MC tonight is Xavier Hawk. He had some audio problems out of the gate. That's why you're about to hear a little bit of uh, Max Headroom sounding stuff. And uh, But otherwise, it was a great episode. Just wanted to prime you for that. Here we go. I think he's locked up. He's totally locked <laughs> up. Is he frozen? Yeah. Frozen. Somebody else has to MC. Well, wow. welcome. Oh, to we're good. We're good. <laughs> Who wants to do it? Go. Greetings and welcome to the Unloose Goose episode seven. Today we're taking the, your questions live and direct from from Facebook. I'm sorry, from uh, YouTube. If you would be so kind as to put all your questions in all caps, we've got a series of questions already given into us by the Goose Group prior to this, and. Uh, would anybody like to say anything before we get into it? We want to tell everybody what we're drinking again? I mean, we usually do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got, okay, I've got Jefferson's Reserve tonight, which a, a good friend dropped off at my workshop, and I'm drinking it, and check this out. I don't know if you can see, but oh, I see there's it. an etched mm-hmm. logo that Cider uh-huh. Hollow, my buddy, hand drew that on this glass. Pretty Classy. Pretty awesome. So cheers. Awesome. Nice. So I am... Uh, I'm just in a, a nice cab, Mondavi uh, bourbon barrel. Oh, hand etched. Heck yeah. I'm drinking some Super Green Dragon Kratom from MyBraveJangles.com. I got some uh, good good reporting on your Kratom today, John, from hey. my fishing partner. That's good to hear. Did it help him catch some fish? I don't know, but it, I, don't, I don't think he needs to be any mellower, but. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely mellows you out for sure. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to today's show. I'm curious what the questions are. Sal, X, you guys got anything on the got a drink or anything there with you, or you just show up empty-handed? Sal's got San Pellegrino. Like always, nice. I'm, I'm a predictable guy. Classy. I got hey, some Carmel Royal. Oh, Carmel Royal in a styrofoam cup. Now that's classy. A Sonic cup or something. He's got Crown Royal in it. <laughs> Heck, yeah. Maybe he's not freezing up. He's just, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So who's got the existing questions? And I got them right here. Our first question says, how can parents who are using the government schools, say a single mom with a full-time job, get homeschooled done instead? Hmm. That's a good question. <clears throat> Let me rock on that one. Um uh, yesterday, last week's episode, we talked about education alternatives to government school, and we shared a lot of ideas and strategies. And I think one of the most powerful things that we shared was the importance of community and not thinking that you have to go at it alone. So uh, as a divorced dad myself, their mom is still in the picture, but on the days where I, it's just me and the kids, you know, for a week or two, I understand how, how difficult that can be. So when it comes to education, that can even be more amplified. So I guess the advice that I would have is don't be afraid to reach out to your community, to build community. A lot of people rally around 
children. I think something Jack pointed out that you can meet people. Hey, I got kiddos. Hey, I'm struggling with this homeschool thing. And right now where everything is with COVID, chances are there's other people in your boat. So what some people are doing is forming what's called a pod where essentially you work with a few other families, four, five, six, however many, and you guys kind of share the duties of homeschooling, whether it's chipping in to buy a curriculum or whether it is taking turns actually leading the classes and the courses. And so it's, you know, you just kind of got to dip your feet in a little bit. I know it's easier said than done, but you don't have to go it alone. There are like-minded people in our community. It doesn't even have to be like-minded people, but there's good people that are in the same situation and you can lower the burden on yourself by working with a group. Um, if I could add to that, I would say that one of the things you'd look at is what have you done since March when they threw your kids out of the school? So, if, I mean, I understand that maybe somebody, you, you might be somebody that was out of a job or was sent home or whatever. And now you got a chance to go back to work and you need the kid to go. I can understand that. But if, if you were doing whatever you do now for a job since March, your kid's been home since March. So, what you might end up with is a person that's like, well, grandma watches them, but grandma can't do homeschool or, or what have you. And if that's the case, I, I really, I know I'm starting to sound like a commercial for these people, but I really recommend looking at Excellus Academy because it's not really homeschool. It's a private school at home. So there are teachers, there is support. So if you can afford the 80 bucks a month it costs with the, the billing scholarship, which just means you make your kid watch a video once a week after they watch Unloose the Goose, um, then you've got teachers that kind of take care of all of the school part. So then all you need is a supervision thing. And that can, like I said, that can work. And it, it can also work with like pods and co-ops and all. We don't necessarily have to have all our kids on the same curriculum. So if you can find a structured curriculum with support, if your kid is a self-directed learner, you may not really have a problem. You need more than a child care solution than you actually need a homeschool solution. If you can do that, that would be another suggestion. What is it? Excellus? Excellus. A, uh, A C E L L U S. Excellus. A C E L U S. Okay. Uh, Academy. And it, there is, you do want to go to excellusacademy.com. All right, Nicole, I tried to take over your, um, editing on, on the page for people and I can't do it because you got some weird thing on there. So your link's not hot that you put out for our people on the live feed. Oh, okay. Good to, good to know. Yeah, so guys, we've got a new page on the website, which is unloose the goose forward slash live stream. And I'm trying to make it so that you can actually see the video there because we don't know the link until we start. But apparently I don't know the link. So we'll You have the link, it's just not hot. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. I can fix that. I can fix that. Please bear with us, guys. We're <laughs> we're still a we're all like experienced podcasters, but doing it this way, we're we're baby podcasters when it comes to the big group. Yeah. So, and then Nicole? Well, I, I was going to say, so, you know, we just had somebody move into my neighborhood who has kids, and um, they they were homeschooled during the March off time, right, or they mm -hmm. were at school, and and it was really good for one of them, for sure. And now they're back in school because their mom's working all day long. And we've been talking about this a lot. And I think a step you can take if you're a single mom in that situation 
is ask in your community who homeschools. What do you do? How do you do it? And start making those connections because I think the solution will come if you really want to do it to first cover supervision because somebody needs to be with the child while, while you're working, but then also to help support the child's learning uh, journey because not all children are self-directed, but then other people have, I think, run into these issues. And if you can have them visit other families or, um, I know some people who have invited other people's children to just come to their homeschool environment during the day because they have so many kids anyway. They're like, what's one more? Why not? Right. And, <laughs> and to try to reinforce that self-directed right. learning skill building, because it's a skill that we don't get in the government schools. Right. It's, you know, you're kind of strung along all day long. There's always an activity one to the next to the next. And you're being told what to do. And the cool thing about homeschooling, I think, is you flip that on its head and the child becomes responsible for their own education. And I think it's a much stronger learning environment, but it's really challenging, I think, for single parents. And so, you know, there's that one part supervisor. I think that can be that can be worked out. But also like easing from government schools into homeschooling, I, I that there's a little bit of a transition there. Just know it'll take time. It's not just like flip a switch and you're homeschooling and everybody's happy. I think part of that, though, part of the upside to all that is like the whole self-directed learning program. I think sometimes parents sort of overestimate the sort of time requirements that that's going to require because sometimes like the, the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum or Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, they're really designed to sort of move at the pace of the student and not really the pace of the instructor. So it's kind of like helpful for parents. I, I would imagine it's probably less time consuming in a lot of ways. If you think about all the extracurricular activities and parent-student conferences and all that nonsense, at the end of the day, you're probably saving time. Yeah, my grandson is done with his work in one and a half to two hours a day. I mean, that's – so he only needs, like, kind of like – if you have a kid that needs a foot in the rear end to get them to actually do their work, if once they get on board, I mean – and I found from talking to other people, that's not like – he's not exceptional or anything. That's pretty normal for for a lot of them. And – that also means you could condense your week into three days or something like that if it if that made it work better for you. So just, I mean, I don't want to turn this whole show into another homeschool show, but <laughs> just, um, you know, try. Just do what you can. And it, if you get to a point where it doesn't work, you can always send them back to the state schools. That's what you have to do. But it's amazing what happens on anything if you try. You take that first step and you usually figure something out. Yeah. I think it's really important for kids is consistency and rhythm being able to have like a consistent day. And if, if you can take the, the work on like one hour in the day or two hours in the day, great, but at least build a, uh, not a pedagogy or a whole full pedagogy, but have a schedule that that's helpful to them. It's hard as a single parent when you have to work all the time, but I think the pod idea is really great. And what Nicole said, like there are groups on Facebook, there are groups on Craigslist, there are groups everywhere. You just have to find out how to get in touch with them. I know here in South Florida right now, my sister runs a adventure camp um, and during the summer it's summer camp and it's all beach based. It's all science based marine science. They're getting marine science awards, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And her business is taking off because and, and during the school year, because hardly anybody's going back to their, their, their public school situation. Yeah. 
Um, Another thing too, I think it's, I think like if you think about it, it's probably more time intensive uh, in the beginning when you just, when you're just getting set up and you're, you know, creating a learning environment and you're getting supplies and stuff like that. But once you get the hang of things, I'd imagine it becomes, you know, I don't have kids, but I'd imagine it becomes much, much less burdensome. Yeah. People find a groove. And, you know, Jack came up with a really great idea a couple months ago and it was like, why don't you just charge 250 bucks a week per kid? and start your own right and it doesn't take much in terms of uh you know curriculum it be it, it the resources are there uh whatever the academy that you that you mentioned earlier i've forgotten it already but you know you could build your own pot right and you could actually potentially outpace your current fox having some nsa issues again because the demand is there I mean, yeah so anyway i mean just on that real quick um that Excel Academy that I keep talking about, they have like two different things that you can do. One is you pay for it. The other one, you can get the whole curriculum for free. You just don't get any transcripts or teacher oversight or teacher help. If you had a teacher who wanted a job like making a mini school, she could use that entire curriculum and you wouldn't need them because you'd have her or him to do that. So there's right. a lot of ways. Just like I said, starting out and trying is a good way to go. We probably should go to another question. Yeah. The second question we have is what are each of you doing now to create resilient communities for harder times? Let's good start question. with John. I mean, we're all doing something, right? <laughs> yeah, we've all got something going on. There's Sal, a podcast called Unloose the Goose. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't really, I mean, we're all in, in counter economics. You're not really, this is the, that's not the sort of thing that you're supposed to really divulge, but, um, <laughs> communities get created through trade. And that's, that's really the whole crux of the issue, right? Communities are created through mutual exchange and in the black and gray market, you don't really divulge what you're doing. But, you know, I try to, I try to send 3D printers to places where Democrats are in control so people can build toys and trinkets to play with. <laughs> you know? I'm but where where are you based? Like what's I'm, I'm I'm in Jersey. I'm about five ten minutes from Manhattan in Jersey. He's gonna be fun on the city podcast. Yeah, yeah. Are you doing anything with your community in in the area for hard harder times? Uh, I'm avoiding the police and the National Guard as the best I can. Uh, we're still in like, we're still production, like, water security, anything like that. No, no, I, I try. I do my best to stay under the radar in my local community. I, I don't get along well with uh, the local government and the local police and the different towns around here. I've had run-ins with basically all of them, so I try to keep my nose clean, stay out of trouble. So, you know, it's, it goes back to what Jack was talking about last episode about Let's being a gray man. I kind of sort of try to be the gray man around the local area here. Man. You know, my community is twofold. One's the people that are actually here, and the other is the giant global virtual community. And I'd say to people, as long as that community's real, it's a virtual community. It's just as powerful, if not more powerful. If I need some help with something, or if, if some more, I think more important to me is if somebody I know needs help somewhere, then I can kind of put out a little call for that and get that person help. And it's, it's something I wouldn't be able to do with a local community. Like if somebody needed help 
like up in Washington State and I had a local community here, I couldn't do that. But with the online community I've built, I, I guarantee you, I, my, I had a situation with my father needing help moving furniture out of his uh, brother's place after his brother passed away. And I had people lining up trucks, trailers, whatever you need coordinated in a day just by saying, hey, can you some help? So I think, like, don't underestimate that. Locally, what we're doing right now, believe it or not, to toss back to homeschool, my wife's like, I want the kids to have socialization also. We created a meetup group and what have you, and we're just setting up kind of like a social get-together fun learning group for kids that's outside of whatever their curriculum is. But then that gets parents together, and that's what I said when we did the community show. If you homeschool, you're halfway to community because as soon as somebody else that does it hears it, you have a common bond, and that's what forms all communities, common bonds. Yep. We're, uh, we are working on building a community that the goal is to rival the state as a means of organizing society. It's called Freedom Cells, and uh, came up with the concept back in 2011. It's been promoted since then, but it's really starting to take flight uh, with all the COVID stuff taking place. And as far as resiliency goes, People are beginning to recognize that this whole technocratic state, they are really pushing and propagandizing for people to take this vaccine. And there's already been legal scholars in certain states and countries that are saying the, the vaccine is going to be mandatory. And if it's not directly mandatory, as in we'll hold you down, stick it in your arm, or we'll put you in a cage, one of the strategies is to take away privileges, like you can't travel, you can't be employed here or there, you can't go into this building or that building, you can't go to the grocery store. So one of the benefits of this Freedom Cell Network, which is global right now, is that, and this is one of the reasons why it's taken flight and how it's resilient, is we're trying to build out this trade infrastructure, this support, mutual aid, mutual defense infrastructure, so that if this were to take place with the vaccines or a whole slew of other controls the government tries to do, then people would still be able to be in community, still be able to engage in commerce, still be able to get food from the network of farms. And so our little organization is unique in that it's centered around small groups of eight people, call it an inner cadre. And then you link up with other groups of eight people. We call that a middle cadre, eight groups of eight. And you link up with eight groups of 64. We call that a meta cadre. And so far, we've grown the network to over 3,500 people. So it's super cool. And anyone listening that hasn't joined or hasn't looked into it, you can check out freedomcells.org, freedomcells.org. And we'd love you to be a part of it. And if they, sign, they can start their own cadre in their area, right? Just like you could start your own homeschool pod. That's right. You just need yourself and a few other people. Uh, the ideal number is eight. There's been some research showing that that's the best way to maximize creativity and effectiveness. And one of the cool features on the website, freedomcells.org, on the back end, once you sign up, is that there's a member map. And so you put your address or you put an address of a landmark like the park or the Starbucks down the street or something. And then you can see people in your area. So chances are, if you live in a decently populated city or town, there's going to be some people either right in the city or at least within an hour or two. And a lot of people that feel alone or isolated, like they're the only person in their area that thinks this way or wants to you know, opt out of the government, they'd be surprised to find that there's a ton of other people close to them. And that proximity is really important. Let me just add one thing real quick, a little off the, the 
the kilter there with the uh, mandatory vaccine. The way that I surmise based on what I'm looking at that they're going to do this is through health insurance. Your health insurance provider is going to say, if you don't do it, we're going to drop you. You're not going to have health insurance. And so I would highly suggest, because you'll save a lot of money anyway, look into the Christian health shares. And some of them, like, you know, you just say you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Other ones, like, want church records. I don't didn't know there was a <laughs> such thing as church records. But, I mean, we found one that saves us a ton of money. Now, I had to lose a ton off my butt before they would let me in because they don't have all the rules uh, the insurance companies do. So get yourself in shape with that too, but have a plan there guys, uh, because that's, you know, we can all make sure that we have ways to feed each other and whatever. But when it comes to health insurance, some people have cost prohibitive, uh, limitations with that. That's something to look for. Cause I think that that's going to be, they're going to try to make your kids do it. So homeschool, what they'll say is if you're, even if you're enrolled in the online virtual school, <laughs> you still got to do it. Um, and, uh, if you're a healthcare worker, they're going, I mean, they already do that to healthcare workers with the flu shot, right? So like yeah. those are three areas you got to really watch out for. How long do you think that that would last though, Jack? I mean, are, is that like the new normal? Like all of a sudden are, you know, oh, you got to Even if there's no COVID, you got to have your, it'll come back if we don't have everybody have shots. I mean, that's, um, cause I think it's going to burn itself out. I think it would have burned itself out. And one of the things you, really need to understand with, with this mandatory vaccine shit is if the government does mandate it under like federal emergency or something like that, where they actually will make you do it. The only way they can do that is to say it's a credible threat to national security and public health. And there's no other valid treatment. So if you want to know why they're MFing every valid treatment, there's your answer. Because if there's a valid treatment, then most of the legal scholars looking at it would say there is no way this flies constitutionally. But if you can say there's no valid treatment and this is going to kill people and this works, works, like Dr. Evil works, right? Then, like, you can make a legitimate case for the government mandating it, even under our Constitution. John and I won't start talking about beating up the Constitution because I am not putting we'll that. Do a show one night. Body. Why John and Jack think the Constitution sucks, but we'll There's do that another night. Emphasis on the con. Emphasis on yeah. the con. Yeah. I don't think vaccines would fly. I mean, there are enough people who would be like, "That's why I kept my guns, motherfucker." Absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe. A well-armed well man is only oppressed to the degree which he tolerates. Yeah, but I, I got to qualify Jack's maybe with like, there's a lot of people who are not organized, would not even know how to stand up, and you have a you have a battalion roll through your town. What are you going to do? There's also the the That's fact that there's a do. shitload of people. There's a shitload of people. That the minute something becomes illegal not to do, will will comply with it, right? That there's like there's probably seventy percent of this country that once there's a law about something. Then you comply with the law, no matter how, no matter, like they can make a law that says every morning you have to get up and stick your finger up your ass. And I'm just saying, don't shake their hands. About 70% of people don't want to shake their hands after that happened. Yeah. And it's, it's a weird thing, but you're like, well, it's against the law. You know, it was also legal at one time to own slaves. Well, that was wrong. Yeah. But I kind of think if we passed a new law, you would be like, well, there he is. He's running away. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Yeah. People are still no, hesitant to take CBD because it's like a little bit gray, or they were just so used to all the marijuana, marijuana. propaganda. Yeah. Marijuana. Oh, you had something to say? 
Well, I was going to say, I didn't get to answer the question yet. So <laughs> I was going to just assert myself right there because the community thing is uh, what, one, uh, one of the most important solutions, I think, as the changes are going to come and there are changes coming, right? There's a lot of effort to control parts of our lives that nobody would have ever dreamed of having control, having control from the top down that I think they're going to be pushing hard in the next two years, you know, and then into the next decade. And so what, what we've been doing here to develop a resilient community is making real connections with people. So we have a digital network and my digital network and Jack's digital network are like so interspersed. It's, it's not, I mean, I don't know which one's which at this point. Uh, and that from that come bright spots, right? Who, who then coalesce around the idea of actually we're going to stay focused on solutions. We're going to stay focused on getting stuff done. We're going to be as positive as we can and acknowledge that we can't control the behemoth, but we can walk around it if we work together. So we have active discussions about this. And then, I mean, in Tennessee, the LFTN network in Tennessee is pretty tight just because we travel to each other's houses. So we know, like, I know that if I had to leave here where I can go. And uh, they they know how to come find me if I'm out of comms, which happened in March. They were about to send somebody out here to see if we were dead in March when the tornadoes hit. And and I think putting purposeful effort into those into your both your on the ground networks, whether they whether they're aligned with you freedom wise or not. I mean, a bunch of homesteaders around you will keep you fed and get your animals taken care of if you need to. Right. Or give you that package of toilet paper if you can't get any toilet paper anywhere else. It's like those networks are important too, and not just the freedom ones. And I have to say, John, I've got five now and there's a big old goose egg in the middle of Tennessee. We're going to fill in. I just need three more to get a freedom all right. there. So, cause there's Super no reason cool. not to tap my network into that network, right? We yeah, should all be absolutely. And vice versa. Uh-huh. But I think making the time for it's really important too. And the other thing I'm doing after the episode we did on crypto, I'm trying to go as far to- off crypto as I can at this point. I'm done. I just, like, my coffee bag provider just said, yeah, I'll take Bitcoin. Like, I'm just trying to get everything there as fast as I yeah. can because I'm I'm worried also about what's going to happen with the monetary system. That's great. So what I'm doing is we have our farm in North Carolina, and we have a really great community of like-minded folks up there. Um, and, and it's not like preppers as much as it is hillbillies and people who've been living there for ages. And already it's like, if the, if the government collapsed or if electricity went out, it'd be like, Oh, it'd be a tough winter, but it would be fine. Um, and so I'm in like my forward operating base in, in South Florida doing business and we're growing food in our backyard, but our, our plan is sort of bug out right back up to the mountains when things get, things get spooky in terms of like pushing, keeping hell at bay. Um, cause that's where I live. I, I don't want to just try to skirt around the edges until, you know, we're living out in the woods again. I want to live in a society that is developed and has commerce and, you know, governance and all these beautiful things where people can actually interact and world travel and all of that. So we're building fire on. So it's a system that everybody becomes a part of, um, gets to vote on how we build wealth by harvesting transaction fees, which is essentially what governance is, right? Uh, a human farm. Um, but instead of being farmed by somebody else. Oh, he's getting too serious, getting too you, every time, those ideas. Every time he has a good solution, they cut him off. 
It was the he, line about the human farms, I think, like this time. Like, the NSA got you again. <laughs> yeah, so fire on. That's, that's what I'm doing there. Um, I think you need a network sniffer on your house network, man. What's I funny mean, is I checked the speed. I did, like, a speed test earlier, and it was, like, <laughs> off the charts, you know, 300 Mbps. I was like, this is great. Wait, wait, back up. They're routing you through Langley. They're routing you through Langley so they can throttle you whenever. <laughs> Explain fire on again. I want to hear, I want to hear that again. I, I, I broke up. I missed you a little bit on that. So basically it's a private membership co-op and it ticks all the boxes in terms of liberty and privacy. Um, it, anytime you make a purchase or a transaction or a vote, it goes essentially like a, through a coin mixer. Um, and so you, we, the company, can't determine who the individual is that made that choice. They can. And so if the government came to us and they'd be like, we need all of your bank records, it's like, here you go. Then good luck figuring out who's who. <laughs> you know it. what I mean? Good luck figuring it out. But we've complied, right? We can't even see it. So, uh, But we harvest all the transaction fees like PayPal or Square or whatever, and we keep it in a pile, and then all the members who are part owners of the company get to vote on how that's dispersed whether we grow more farms, some schools, some assets to back our private company, whatever, universal income. But okay, it's Max direct is back, republic dude. democracy. Yeah, man, we can't hear you. This is like, I was just thinking, we need to do a whole episode on Fyron, and but you have to go somewhere else for he better. <laughs> it's not that far. So, and not tell anybody. All right, yeah. so question number three. Um, what do you guys know about Eastern Europe and liberty prospects in the EU in general? Where's Pete when we need him? I'm going to go nothing. I'm out. I, Eastern Europe and the EU. I know the Ukraine fucks some shit up if people don't do what they say. So yeah. I've, I've, I, did, I did a couple episodes in my podcast about like geopolitics, and we, we did discuss like a little bit of Eastern Europe and the role that that plays in like the whole – like. We did like a more like academic approach to it all. And it really turns out if you really delve into the literature that Eastern Europe is actually really the key to world control. Whoever controls Eastern Europe has access to sort of the door between the East and the West. And that really puts that person, that entity in a position of power. So that's really what the Cold War was about. And like you can think of a lot of wars going back to like the Greeks and the Persians as like sort of a battle over that sort of piece of land. And that, um, a lot of that is, is what's going on with Russia, but also a lot of what the reason why Russia is so uh, interested in Eastern Europe is because they're they're landlocked, right? Yeah. Russia doesn't really have a, a warm water port, and that's really been the source of their frustration for their entire history. So Putin sort of kind of just forced his way into uh, the Ukraine, but even still, he has to make his way through uh, you know the Black Sea and the Med and stuff like that, and we've got basically have the entire U.S. Navy sitting over there. So he, he does have a port in Vladivostok on the, on the other side, but it's, it's a cold water port, and it's only open for a few months out of the year. So that really restricts him. But I think there was, like, a Russian general who said something to the effect of, like, when they were in Afghanistan, that if he could, like, their dream was to wash their boots in the warm waters of the Indian Ocean or, or something crazy like that. Well, they've got, you know, uh, what, Crimea now, right? Like, because they kind of annexed that. That yeah. has ports on the black sea and that's why that happened yeah it was also because the crimean people actually believe it or not crimean people actually wanted to be part of russia because they were never part of ukraine until we decided to fix it every time we touch something we fix it i, I do know about that I, i'm ukrainian for those that don't know i'm uh, second generation ukrainian uh from both sides full blood 
you know. And I can tell you that my real feeling about Ukraine, we talk about how they're an ally and all. If there, if there will, if there will come a day where there is another kind of like rising of a Nazi state in Europe, it will probably be Ukraine. There's some really bad shit going on in Ukraine that no one talks about that I don't want to go into right now. Okay. We, uh, the Freedom Cell Network has a lot of folks in Western yeah. Europe, especially Great Britain and also Hungary. Um, there's like five brave souls that are in Russia that are in the Freedom Cell Network and then a little bit scattered throughout Eastern Europe. But there's definitely a higher density and concentration in Western Europe than there is Eastern Europe. And that's probably due to liberalization the further west you get, the good kind of liberal. Well, good and bad. But well, that's what, any perspective. What, if any, difference do you see between what was formerly Eastern European communism and what is now Russian um, and Chinese, let's say? You know, in, in my mind, the Chinese have a more uh, eyes on everything sort of approach, whereas in Eastern Europe, not so much. You might, if you were quiet about it, you know, might be able to just uh, find your way around without getting into too much trouble. What do you guys think? I think that like comparing Russia and China doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's, they're night and day difference, you know. Um, I would say there's a lot of parts of Russia right now where you probably would have more liberty and freedom you do in the United States. Um, now if you're in Moscow or, or what have you, there's a little bit more of a structure and whatever. But if you're out in the countryside of Russia, don't nobody care what you do. I mean, the closest thing you can find to anarchy in the world right now is probably in Siberia. Uh, and not all Siberia is complete frozen tundra either, just to be clear on that. I mean, you get out into, you know, far out in the, the countryside of Russia and people don't care. Uh, and the government doesn't care. But in China, it's kind of the same thing as far as the federal government. The federal government is more involved in the lives of the average American than the Chinese federal government is. But the local governments in China, no matter where you are, it's the same brutal shit everywhere. They're much more concerned with like teleporting their knowledge back to the mothership. So it really, it doesn't look like the federal Chinese government, but it really is. It's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a new feudal system where you had the Duke or the Duchess or whatever that, you know, had their little, their duchy. And then they would always be, you know, crap gifting back to the king. So it really was the king, but it didn't look like the king. Yeah. That's how China is where Russia is like, once you're outside of, you know, a few of the, the big cities, I mean, once you don't matter, you don't you matter. You don't matter. Yeah. Like well, nobody gives also- a shit. In societies where there are a lot of tight controls on the economy, what happens? Black markets happen. Yeah, yeah. So you got it's, it. Just becomes the utopia, norm, right? And then that sets a cultural expectation of, yeah, we know that's the system. We'll work outside the system, and every so often somebody gets busted. Yeah. But basically, they're the. I think many. So I'm thinking from my cultural observations and this is not based in any research but of of russians and eastern europeans they're the first person to look for the way to not use to go around the regulation they're probably better at finding those loopholes than any of us here yeah because they've you know the ones who were stuck in that system grew up their whole life trying to figure out how to get stuff done they wanted to get done 
without getting in trouble for it by going around the system. Well, and that 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 legal, you know, problem creates the opportunity, right? You don't have a gray market or a black market if everything's legal. Right. And you got to compete with all the big companies and what have you. But if you create something where you have an illegal market or you have a highly taxed market, either one of those situations, you've got a black or gray opportunity. So these societies that have so much of that, and then they're very, see, one thing they have that we don't, they would think we're stupid. Like, how do you create community? Why don't you have a community? What's wrong with you? Are you an right. asshole? Don't you? Right. Like, that's how they would be. They're like, I know everybody. They, they know everybody and everybody knows everybody else. Right. So like, and they, they clearly understand something our people don't. It's us and them and them is the government and the government is the enemy. So yep. that's one thing I'll say. Like, there's probably more ability to circumvent in Russia than China. But the Chinese people know the Chinese government is their enemy. By and large, they know that. The Russian people know the government is their enemy. By and large, they know that, right? We are like, we're going to fight over which side of the government's our friend, <laughs> right? And, and, and right. I'm sure they would look at us like you're and, – and because of that, this community, we're all talking about how, to, how do we create community or whatever. They just have a community because since it's us and them, right, well, you're one of us. And if they find out you're one of them, I'm just going to say in Russia, I, I have family there and friends there too. And you just kind of like, he took a walk and didn't come back. Don't know where he went. I don't know where he went. You know where he went? No, I don't know where he went. About you? Nah, I don't know either. Sort of like comparing, <laughs> comparing Maoism and Stalinism is sort of like comparing a heart attack and a stroke, right? You can't really win. Oh, suck. I mean, I mean, really, like it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're screwed. Yeah. But, but I, I think it's a good point to say that there, there is a much more thriving black and gray market in Russia than there is in China. Yeah. Uh, if you Google Nalevo, N-A-L-E-V-O, it's, they actually had a name for these subversive black markets that people could access in, in Russia. I don't, I don't think there is such a thing in China because I think no. they're a little bit more, you know. But that might help the folks who asked us that question about Eastern Europe, uh, Noel Nalevo. Yes, Nalevo. Yeah, we'll get that and put that in the show notes as well. Okay, so, Davey, are you going to bring up the birthing question that we have going on in YouTube? Because I'm pretty sure all four of you have a lot to say about this right now, uh -oh. right? Birth? I know I froze him too because I brought up birth. Well, I birthed three children, so yeah. If you want to, if you want to take it, I didn't see it, so let's let's do it. I know we got. So somebody was asking, would you be able to comment on how important the consideration of home birthing might be in the coming decade? I find parallels to bringing kids out of school. To birthing outside the uh, hospital. Xavier, it sounds like you're the first person who should comment. So I had all three of our daughters at home um, in, a, in a tub, and one of them came out so quick that there was no time for the tub. Um, <laughs> and That's awesome. One of them was breached prior to, and the, the midwife, who was actually the midwife who taught the midwives in the United States, she's like elderly lady, but like a legend, her, uh, just an amazing woman. And she was able to turn my child in the belly by nudging, you know? And yeah. it's like, that's just like common kind of, like, I would think that that's just a common sense thing to do. But right now, our medical system is like robots, like the matrix, like you're born, they, they put you full of drugs. A lot of the times mm -hmm. down here, they schedule the births around their golf community cycle yeah. instead of, you know, around the natural cycles. So <laughs> it's legit. Like they do that shit. And, no, and so I, I am very much about home births. I'm very much about midwives trained who know what they're doing. Um, and, and I think it's very important. 
we had both of our kiddos at home as well, their, their mother and I, and it is definitely a big step when it comes to sovereignty, especially for the woman. There is a tendency, and we've talked about this on the show before, where people just look to external authority rather than being an authority themselves or rather than trusting their motherly or fatherly instincts. And the doctors and the Western medical establishment in general are so interventive rather than trusting the natural process. And whenever you intervene, whether you're a government intervening in the market or a doctor intervening in the natural pregnancy process, it creates these unintended consequences. And so one of the big things is uh, Pitocin, which is given to mothers to kind of spur the birth along. Well, that creates this vicious cycle where the mother's body gets out of whack and they end up having an increased rate of C-sections. Same thing with the epidural. It increases the chances of C-section dramatically. And so I definitely think it's a huge part of sovereignty, especially when it comes to registering your children with a slave surveillance number or birth certificate. We brought up to our midwife, hey, we really don't want to have a birth certificate for the children. And she was like, wow, you know, I haven't heard that since I was delivering babies for the Republic of Texas and the Branch Davidians. And we were like, wow, this lady's cool. So uh, she, because she was a licensed midwife, she actually was required by law to fill out a birth certificate. But uh, my kid's mom and I, we didn't sign it, nor have we ever gotten them social security numbers. If you had a birth in a hospital, then a social service worker would definitely put a lot of pressure to do the social security number, although you could still opt out if you were you know, brave and stern. But, yeah, it's really important. And then, you know, just on a practical utilitarian sense, having the comfort of your own home and delivering a baby in your bed or in a tub. Um, we did a tub also, although although we burnt through all the hot water and it was like lukewarm kind of cold water. So it wasn't very comfortable for, for Catherine. But right after delivering the child, man, it was empowering to pull the baby out and actually be the one to deliver the child. Um, right after you deliver, you hang out there in bed. You don't have all the white lights and the lab coats yeah. and the strangers and the prodding and poking and weighing and all sorts of stuff. You just hang out there and the umbilical cord hangs out there for a while too. Um, and you can be there in the comfort of your home without the stress and the baby can be brought into the world in a very natural, comfortable, stress-free way. So I would, I would highly recommend it. And for the mothers that are, you know, I'm not a mother, I've seen what it looks like for the pain, but I would encourage you to, to trust your body, uh, and, remind women that they're very powerful beings that produce life and and you can do it mothers have been doing it for since the beginning of human civilization without the aid of a doctor and then you get a good midwife right deal with emergencies and they can take you to the hospital if it's a big emergency yeah that's the thing i was going to say is um i i don't have children if I were to get pregnant at this age i would have the child and i would try to have it at home it's very unlikely i'll have children at this point um, but if I did, I would want to have it at home in a, as natural a way as possible, just because I'm a hippie. And <laughs> I think, you know, a natural experience is better for me, better for the child to have my senses about me without an epidural so that I can understand what's going on. Because if you can't feel anything, you don't really know what's going on. And I understand it's horribly painful from my sister and all of my friends who have gone through the process. Um, but I also think the hospitals have become 
so full of rules about how birth has to go. You know, if you're if you're in labor for 24 hours, the 24 hour and one minute you're getting a C-section. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, what if you have a 48 hour labor? What if that is what it is like? All my friends were trying to put off when they get to the hospital just so they wouldn't have to have that C-section after having Uh, gone through labor for 24 hours. And then they really push the vaccines on you. Oh, they do hard. Um, It's, you know, like when my sister had her babies, they were like, do you want this vaccine? And she'd be like, no. And then they would push it. It's dangerous, yo. And it's like, like, give me a week, man. Like, I don't need it out of this. (laughs) Why does my newborn need hepatitis? Yeah, why does, why does my newborn need hepatitis, right? My newborn yeah. will not be doing IV drugs. My no. newborn is not right. going to be like no sex with prostitutes, food, right? Yeah, like, age I'm eight so, or nine. I mean, yeah, but I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna well, take yeah, it back to this. Wait on this. Like any whatever choice you make, make your choice. Make it with the facts that you make. If you are a person who wants to schedule a C-section, sure, right? Yeah. I'm not going to judge it because it's not my body, but at the same time. There are so many things that have, I think have changed in how how the medical system handles birth that, you know, they, they used to just kind of throw you in a room. That's what my grandma told me. She was just thrown in a room until she had the baby. And, you know, if they were going to need to intervene, they'd intervene for help. And then by the time we're, we're you know, now we're like 80 years later, 80, 60. I'm an old lady, by the way, apparently. Um, <laughs> they're... It's just it's turned into a factory, and I don't I don't want to be any part of a baby factory. So my thing on this is I look at having a home birth like having a mixed martial arts tournament at your house, right? So if I decided during our next workshop this fall I was going to do an MMA tournament here, I'd have a medic on scene. That medic stands in for the midwife. You got a medically trained person that knows what they're doing there in case something goes wrong. I would also know exactly where the hospital is and exactly how we're going to get there if something goes wrong. Because, like, we have a mutual friend, Patrick, Nicole, that their last birth, they had to, like, hair flight the mother. Like, she went into, like, a crash on, like, post-menopausal diabetes, and the kid had problems, and both of them – needed life-saving intervention so you can have the greatest midwife in the world and there's still things that can go wrong and i'm all for it but have a plan b and be ready to execute that plan b immediately and if you have a good midwife you probably are that's probably part of what they do for you is to make sure of that but that's my only caveat i figure like for for centuries and millennia women had babies and then like picked them up and nursed them and walked down the street like that happened or, you know, what is in the path in the woods. So I know that we can do this, but I also know there are these times when things go wrong. So if you're going to take that step, that's great. Just have some immediately executable plan to we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to stop this and we're going to go to the hospital now because yeah, yeah. it can happen. Oh, yeah. No, it and, can and happen. things went horribly wrong a lot too. Yeah. yeah. But in the general scope of things, birth is a natural process when something is wrong. If you're, if you, like Jack said, if something's, if something's going bad, then you, you go. But otherwise, there's no need for it. 
Yeah. Same with health in general. The whole, like, I'm grateful to Western medicine when my son broke his, uh, when he broke his leg or when I had this terrible infection in my chest that was like life threatening. Doctor said I had a 40% chance of living. I was in the hospital for 21 days. Grateful for Western medicine. But most things you can just give your body the proper nutrients, avoid stress, get some exercise, and the body will take care of itself. Same thing with pregnancy. So Western medicine, allopathic medicine has a place, but the default the foundational element should be more natural, Eastern elements, herbalism, just take care of your body. Agreed. I always say if there's so a if, sign of my spleen, take me to the hospital. If there's not a yield sign of my spleen, ask me before we go. <laughs> That's right. I think we're going to do healthcare. Health freedom is one of the future episodes, maybe in a couple of weeks. So for folks that are interested in that, that'll be a good one. That goes along with the mandatory vaccines thing. You know, there's the religious exemption, but then you can also get your own health insurance. There are a lot of cool plans, like what Jack was talking about, the, the Christian ones. But there are other ones, too, like co-ops. You know, I'm, I'm all about co-ops. Um, so what do you guys have resources useful for learning about permaculture? I know, Jack, you have a uh, workshop coming up this fall. When is that? Just go, Jack. Does anything good? They cut him off. Anyway, so um, my workshop is going to be in November. Uh, their tickets are going on sale in September. I think the 12th. It's the second Saturday in September. Um, you can check my website for more information about that, the survivalpodcast.com. And we're going to be doing some permaculture stuff there, but it's not a permaculture workshop. It's it's a more of a prepper workshop and kind of it's like a prepper workshop meets a frat party. Uh, as far as learning about permaculture, um, I just uploaded to my personal YouTube channel uh, the, the, the DVD, Urban Permaculture, by Jeff Lawton, which has had a copyright complaint against it. But I found out why, and it's like this. 30 second snap of music in it that the person that provided it had something with his producer and whatever. So I sucked it out and then I uploaded it and it went away. So it's available on my <laughs> YouTube played. channel. And I would say that you, that urban permaculture DVD by Jeff Lawton is one of the greatest entry level understanding of what you can do, why you can do it, how other people have done it that you can find. And all of his DVDs, if you can find them, because there's a whole dispute with the producer in that, are great. Um, he's probably the best permaculture teacher in the world. And so just go on to YouTube and type in Jeff Lawton. He spells it a weird European way, way with a G-E instead of J. So G-E-O-F-F, Jeff Lawton. Uh, just outstanding. I think my show is pretty good. I don't want to toot my own horn, but if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and just type the word permaculture, and you'll find tons of stuff that I've done. And if you want kind of entry level, go back through them and look for the old ones. Look for the ones that are from like 2008 to 2012. Um, and I probably need to do some basic level stuff. And then I have a uh, permaculture series on YouTube. You can go Jack Spirico Permaculture on YouTube, and you'll find uh, a whole series of videos, like 18 videos I did on introduction, talking about the, the ethics and, and what have you of permaculture and, and the prime directive. And if, if you really want to understand permaculture, though, and I had to condense it into something I could do tonight, it would be that it is a scientific system of design based on systems-level thinking to enable permanent culture. People think it's permanent agriculture. They think it's all about growing food, and it's about so much more than that. It's about looking at 
here's here's my zone zero of my house that I'm sitting inside of right now. And then just outside of my house is my zone one. And a little beyond that is zone two. And you keep going depending on how big the property is. And how do I design everything on that property to be a system that serves the people that live there? And it serves the people that live here from a standpoint of starting out with that that prime directive, which is the only ethical solution that we have as as beings is to take responsibility for our own existence and for that of our children. And that's where everything comes from. And that, and then it's all systems level thinking. And then we go to our three ethics. And the three ethics were something Bill Mollison, who was the founder of permaculture, came up with by looking at as many indigenous cultures as he could talk to. And, and what was the commonality? If they had these rules or ways that they lived and what have you, and how could you simplify them down to a three or four phrases? And what he came up with was first was care of the earth. You don't, you don't fuck up the earth because you live here. The same reason you don't fuck your house up. You have one house, you have one earth. So you take care of the earth. The second was care of people. We don't hurt people. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, right? So that's, that's non-aggression principle of libertarianism and anarchism. And it fits right in with permaculture. We, we, we take care of the earth and we take care of people. And then the, the crazy, you know, leftist, nuts got into permaculture because it looks like hippie stuff and they thought it would be their thing. So they changed that last ethic to fair share. And I can make that work, but I'm not going to bother doing it tonight. What, what the third ethic of permaculture really is, is that we reinvest the surplus of our production to the end of the first two. So everything that's in surplus is reinvested to the care of earth and care of people. But remember, the anchoring thing is the prime directive. So the, 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 the people that I'm going to care for first are myself and my children so that I'm not a burden on somebody else. So it's not about reinvesting to care of earth and care of people in some sort of, you know, socialist manifesto where it's distributed to others. If I'm working on my property, I have a surplus of waste on my property. It behooves me to take that waste and convert it into nutrient so I can grow more food, right? And if it's not something that I can do that with, then Where can I find a place for it to go where it's no longer waste? It's now a resource. And how can I do it without harming the earth and harming people? And that's, that's, that's the best introduction I can do to permaculture in five minutes or less right there. So we checked. Yeah, to add Toby Hemingway's book, Gaia's Garden is a really good, if you just, yeah. if you're a book person and you want to read it, it walks you through the principles and that's a, it's a great starting point. Because if you start off with like Bill Mollison's designer's manual, your brain will just hurt and you'll quit and you'll throw it away. Right. You can't handle yeah. it, right? Or Masanobu Fukuoka, you won't know what to do. You'll just be like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Maybe we can put links for that stuff on the show notes page because I'd love to check that out. But um, the general idea, Jack, is just to, I mean, you're just trying to create, a, you know, instead of growing whatever food you, you want to eat, you're just growing stuff that's natural to the environment. Is, is that, is that correct? Or no, no, you can totally have, you know, that's where people get, uh, tripped up in a permaculture system. You can only have your typical annual gardens growing peppers and tomatoes, even if they're not indigenous to where you're at. It's, it's, it's not like rolling and live on native plants. And, uh, the, the founder of permaculture actually said of the, all this concept of invasive species and whatever he says, I use 100% native plants. They're all native to planet Earth. So, you know, like that Not was right. his whole thing, you know. He also has a town in Australia that wants to dig, his, dig him up out of his grave and kill him because he introduced uh, honey locusts there. And they were the thornless honey locusts. And, you know, in the, the movie um, Jurassic Park, 
where the uh, Jeff Goldblum character says, you know, nature finds a way. Well, nature found a way, and the seedlings had thorns, and these giant thorns are everywhere. Wow. Um, but, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's more about take it back to a systems-level thinking and do no harm. Like, if you want to actually take the two ethics and make them one, do no harm. Don't hurt people and don't hurt the planet, so do no harm. And so how do I grow that garden without doing harm? And then – we also accept the fact that we, you know, Jeff, who was Bill's um, kind of primary uh, student, like Jeff's kind of taken over now as the guy. And, um, you know, Jeff's very pragmatic and like, yeah, you know, we're, we're using plastic or whatever, but that's the best thing for this situation. And all we can do is what we can do with what we have. And this resource is here. So we're not going to go out of our way across the globe to grab this resource and bring it here. But if it's sitting here and it's already here and somebody else already used it and now it's going to be wasted in a landfill and we can recapture it, I'm not going to worry about how it got here. I'm going to worry about what I can do with it now. And so it's it's that level of thinking. But, again, you have to take it beyond the agricultural, horticultural component because, you know, with, with permaculture we can – look at a piece of property, and we, now we're going to use natural things like trees and whatever. We can say, well, here's a fire sector. This is where our greatest fire threat's from. And you'd think what you'd want there is to be wide open. And, and what Bill Molson would tell you, you want huge trees. And the reason you want huge trees eventually is he, what he said is they, the students are all like, they burn. He's like, yeah, go take a match and try to light one on fire. And we've all seen in if you get into an ancient forest – you see trees that have like this charred coating on there and they're still alive and they don't spread the flames. They actually stop the flames. If they're the right tree in the right place at the right time. Well, how do you know that? Well, you do what's called a sector analysis. And, and so it, it's, again, it's very hard for me to condense into something like yeah. this, but you're, you're looking at what is, what is, what is over there and what do I want to invite? What energies do I want to bring in and what energies do I want to exclude? Right. So if I have a bad visual this way, I want to block it out. But if I have a beautiful visual this way, I want to bring in. So it's elements of design from a standpoint of just aesthetics. It's an elements of design from noise, elements of design of I've got wind or solar aspect. And it's not just about growing plants. It's about serving the beings that live on the property. So Great. like one of the coolest things I ever saw done was a guy did a design where he does the whole place and it was in a bathroom with a cabin. And there was like, when you bent down and looked up the mountain, you could see a waterfall and he designed the, the bathroom so that when you wanted to wash your hands in the sink, you had to bend down a little bit. And only then did you see the waterfall. So as you touched the water with your hands, you saw the waterfall in the distance and he brought those two elements together to serve the person. So it's 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 to that level of design. It, it's a it's a very very cool place to walk down. And if you're a engineering type person, it's 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 actually fits. You know, you think it's all like purple breather, mud rolling hippie, and it's it's actually very very engineering centric. But it's engineering the entirety of all the systems together in a holistic way. Well, and yeah. Jeff Lawton has a PDC digital PDC that you can take. Yeah permacultural design course and um, or certification. I don't know what the C stands for, but I think he's launching a new one in the next month or two. So we can totally put that link out. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put my link out.
So I get money. <laughs> so we're at an hour. I've got maybe five more questions. Do you guys go want to? On. I'm good. I'm All right. Good. Wait, so, I need to pour more. You go. <laughs> so on that permaculture question, the next one is what crops to start in a cold climate in fall or late summer, i.e. zone five or colder? And I would say, you know, kale, spinach, some of the, some of those real easy ones right there. I grow a lot of leafy greens successfully in like cold weather up here, like lettuce and like you said, kale, spinach, stuff like that. Broccoli. Broccoli yep. is a great one because all the bro- brassicas. Broccoli. Yeah, all the brassicas. Broccoli. I've had bro- like if you put baby broccoli out in the cold, it won't grow. But if you put it out like in the fall and you grow it into the winter, I've had broccoli plants with icicle hanging off of it and they survive once they're they're mature and established. Kale. Yeah. Kale, yeah, kale's I've had like kale frozen solid, and I'm like, damn it, I should have covered that. Yeah. And there are limits though in a cold climate to what you can do. So like, look at the technologies like cold frames and things yep. like that. Like, I saw a guy, he did a really cool thing. He went to a habitat store and bought like an old storm door, you know, with a glass in it, and he just built a box that was the right size for that door on the ground. Yeah. And then that yeah. became like a mini greenhouse because you're growing greens, you know, you only need that much space, and then. Instead of having a great big greenhouse, if you have something like a cold frame and you put some sort of artificial sweet, uh, heat source in there, you don't need as much heat because you're, you're heating less space. So yeah, the, I know somebody the, the, who uses, can... like, tea yeah. lights. The yeah. Little tea light candles. That's what they use. They put them under there. I use a, a reading lamp in mine. I have a cold frame. 100-watt light bulb yeah, on a timer. Yeah. yeah. You do a 100-watt yeah. light bulb and go on Amazon. Well, go to T-Spaz. Dot com and look up Thermacube. And uh, a Thermacube is a little plug, and you plug it in. You can buy them at different temperatures, but you can buy one where it turns on at 35 degrees and turns off at 45 degrees. So you take a 100-watt light bulb, an extension cord, throw it in your, your little cold frame, and uh, put that light bulb on there. And when it goes down below 35 degrees, that bulb will come on, but then you won't cook your plants because once you hit 45 degrees, sun comes up, whatever, like magic, little mercury moves around inside there, and boom, it turns off. There's all kinds of tech you can use. Um, if I had the right aspect on this house, I would build basically a greenhouse on the south-facing side of my home. Yep. And I think in cold climates, that is that's golden if you can do that because not only do you have all that space you can grow food, but now you have heat and you can transfer that heat into your house. So now you're doing solar heat. And that's when we talk about permaculture where it's so much more than just the food. I, like that greenhouse is going to never probably pay for itself in lettuce. It's expensive to build a, a significant greenhouse, but it will pay for itself in heat in first year. Yeah. Like heat's expensive, right? Heat. I don't care if it's coal, it's oil, it's electric, it's gas. It's expensive. The most expensive thing we do is make heat with, you know, energy. And, man, it's so easy to do with solar. But other crops, I don't know. I mean, like you guys nailed it. It's like um, your garlics, your onions. I mean, uh, Brussels sprouts, but we're back to brassicas, right? Mustards. Bring it inside. That's the other thing. If you're really, really, really cold, bring it inside. Make a crackyish. Uh, uh, yeah, something. And and people bust my chops about this not being organic, and I don't care because I'm getting fresh lettuce <laughs> that is not shipped to me with your fossil fuels, right? Like yeah. it tastes better, it is better, it's healthier, and I can 
from an economic standpoint, I'm not spending that much money on it. It's great. And I'm not even in a colder climate doing that. But if I was somewhere like Wisconsin or Alaska, I'd be all about setting up indoor systems and yeah. taking advantage of that south-facing whatever yeah. I have when the sun's out. As much, yeah. Okay, so we'll go to skills. What are three skills you think everyone should have for the next coming couple of years? And we'll just say one, two, three, and Sal, you can start. <sighs> three skills everyone should have. Jeez. Oh, I'd say number one. I, I think we lost you again. That's okay. So number one, the first thing I would say is financial competency, right? Like you need to know what's happening in the world right now and how to prepare yourself. Uh, and I, of course, you know, I'm, my concern is inflation and the way I, I protect is with uh, precious metals and cryptocurrency. Also, I think it's probably a good idea to know uh, not how to use a gun, but how to how to build a gun. How to, because you know, I'm, I'm not sure that access is going to be as prolific uh, today as it will be in the next 18 months to 24 months. Um, and the third thing I'd say is know how to grow your own food and be self-sufficient, which, you know, we've spoken uh, at length here. But I really do think those are probably the three main things I would stress. John? I would say that knowing how to defend yourself with a firearm or with your fists would be uh, important. I think there's going to be more and more civil unrest and more and more problems and breakdowns in society. So that would definitely be useful. Um, I guess growing your own food, of course, is foundational. I think that should be what people lead with, actually. You can't really do a whole lot without eating first. So growing your own food and Again, feeding into the civil unrest. I think that we're going to have some pretty crazy times ahead of us this next decade. Um, and then the last one, I was trying to think of um, either having good people skills and being able to jive and build value and interact peaceably, um, mutually beneficial with the other human beings. That's one. And that was kind of tied with uh, being able to earn a living, um, potentially being an entrepreneur, being able to make it through these trying times because I have a feeling that big collapse that I've been anticipating since 2006, many people have been anticipating for decades and it's going to come sooner or later. It's not a question of if, but when, I don't know how much longer this can all be propped up for. So in those times, um, there's still going to be trade. There's still going to be wants and needs being able to fulfill those wants and needs somehow would definitely be beneficial. Jack. Um, I'm going to start off with critical thinking. And recently I did kind of an image meme thing that was, it was something to the effect that I said that the person with a limited mind is far more, uh, has, has far more limitations than the person, or the person, than the person with a limited budget. I would, I would rather have the ability to think critically than have money. Cause if I can think critically, I can make money. I can do what John was talking about with entrepreneurship. There's, uh, an, an immense amount of things I can do. And I can also deal with all the disinformation that's thrown at me. And, and critical thinking starts off with whatever you're told, immediately doubt it and go Descartes, right? Like I doubt that I'm doubting. So I think therefore I am. And that doesn't mean that everything you hear is wrong. It just means you start out assuming it's wrong. And then you either prove it's right and that you were wrong for thinking that, or you prove that it is wrong and then you know what to do. So critical thinking is one. Uh, next I would say like taking a cue from, Every government everywhere, we have the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Almost every 
federal government in every modern nation has something equivalent to it. And you might sit there and go, what the hell do alcohol, tobacco, and firearms have to do with uh, each other? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, it's the major barter implements in every economy that ever breaks down is smoke. And that, you know, that's, that's, that's all drugs, basically. Um, whether it's tobacco or cannabis or opium, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and, and guns, right? And alcohol. So I'm going to say how to make alcohol. Cause it's like one of the easiest things you, out of the, out of the three, it's the easiest thing that you can do. If you can find a sugar and a, and a wild yeast and water, and if you can't find water, you're dead anyway. So you can make alcohol. So learning how to distill, learning how to make meads, learning how to make wines. You know, beer is great. That's where I started. It's a good way to start. Um, but beer is going to require a grain, which is a large quantity that might be better as a food in that situation, or it's going to co- require like a malt extract. That's going to require a commodity-based economy. But if you start learning how to make wines, well, that tree with all the rotting, nasty apples that you don't want to eat, you can still make really great cider, right? So learn how to make alcohol uh, and then learn how to distill it. Because now we can, we can make a fuel, we can make a medicine, we can make a really high barter value implement because now we can fit. It's just like when the, the cops uh, and, the, and the law made it like, you know, if you only could have an ounce of marijuana, you weren't in as much trouble. So they made the marijuana stronger. Well, we can do that real easy with alcohol. We don't have to come up with a new strain, you know. Uh, we can just learn how to distill. And then my next one would be, uh, Sal talked about learning how to make guns. Well, Go buy the guns you need now. What you run out of when it comes to guns is ammo. Learn how to reload. Learn how to reload because now with a limited amount of components, I can have 20 different calibers and gauges, and I can reload everything with the same components to a degree. And so I would put bullet casting within that as well because now as long as I can get some sort of malleable, soft, meltable metal like lead, which is cheap and available almost anywhere I can find a source of lead. I can make bullets. I can even learn how to make my own powder, and I can reload and get the equipment and learn how to reload. And then I think the word John was looking for there when he was talking was diplomacy, right? I think, so I'll throw my bonus in, is is, is learn how to be a good diplomat because a lot of stuff we talk about that relies on community, diplomacy is the way that you get there. Yeah, well said. Okay, I'm going to assume that he handed Thanks, it to Jack. me because he froze. So <laughs> he froze it again. That's okay. Fuck. I know I'm next. So critical thinking was my first one, Jack. And I, I wrote in our private chat that he stole mine, but I'm not I surprised he it. said that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I think the second one is so critical thinking because if you can't figure out what's really going on and what to do about it, then you're effed. Say it. Fucked. I, you know, it's not my podcast. I don't usually say it's my podcast. And the second thing is read, reading. I know that seems like such a small thing, but being able to read and reading comprehension and read well is a really important tool to be able to learn anything you need to know. And I know, like, if there was a meltdown, the internet might go away. You may not have that resource, but there are resources in every community in these buildings we call libraries where you can learn reloading, where you can learn how to process a pig, where you can learn all sorts of different things. And those books are still there, right? 
But if you don't know how to read and if you don't build that skill to where you can do it efficiently and it's a hardship for you, and I know lots of people that it's a hardship for, um, it's harder to learn. I mean, you, there are other ways. And the third thing I would say is relationships. That's your other way to learn, right? Is those relationships with people around you. And I mean, develop it and learn how to develop real relationships because it's not just diplomacy. When, when times get tough, where I am right now, if I can't make my mortgage payment, am I worried? First of all, my mortgage payment's like 500 bucks. So we'll start there. Um, Am I worried? No, because there are enough people around me who would have my back on that, that I'm not worried. Of course, I don't see a situation where I'm not going to be able to make that, but you know, every, I know that that backstop is there and that's because I have real relationships with people and all of those people have a different level of knowledge. Some are better at self-defense with guns. Some are better at situational awareness because situational awareness, those skills are super important right now with the riots, like popping up places, right? Yeah. But the relationships and real relationships you develop are what get you through, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you keyed on situational awareness. That was one. Know what's going on when, how to avoid combat, how to avoid, you know, problems. Number two would be de-escalation, which goes with diplomacy. Um, how to get people who are in a crazy state to not be in a crazy state so that you can reason with them, so that you can barter, you can trade. And the third... <laughs> this must be a good one. The most yeah, important, and that's right. why he just like totally punked out. But he'll be back. <laughs> so, <laughs> he hasn't moved. Tell us number three. Aries back. What's your third He's one? Back. You're back. Number three is demonstrating your value in a short amount of time. I'm a paramedic. I'm a father. I'm a wilderness EMT, and uh, I'm ham radio operator. Don't shoot. You know, or I'm a citizen emergency response trainer. Don't shoot. Um, you know, so that people can see your value at, at even in a high stress situation. Um, so your value elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you're great one. I never, I can't believe 12 years I never came up with that. Are we going to do that at your workshop, Jack? Well, we're totally doing that. I'm totally ripping him the fuck off and we're do totally it. <laughs> yeah, do it. It's yours. I don't mind. You have one I don't know why he's not coming. People I mean, in this coming. room that you're worth keeping. Go. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. a great one, right? You gotta go first as fuck, cause the guy that's like, cause we have like 50, 60 people here. You're at the end of that. You've had all kinds of time to think, but totally. the first person. Yeah. All right. We're not gonna tell David if we're gonna make him do it and see what Yeah, kind of he'll be first, but he can probably pull that off. He'll yeah. be like, I have like guinea pigs that I can like milk and then make guinea pigs, guinea pig cheese, like, yeah. Yeah, I've already yeah, gamed this right. out in my mind, you know? Like what different scenarios I would say what in, you know. So if you could buy one or two things to further personal liberty, what would they be? Excluding crypto, seeds, and animals. There he goes. He went away, and I'm looking shocked because I I know one thing I'm about to buy, but that's a different thing. So I'll start. So it's not crypto. Sal's selling what I want to buy, and he's down on my screen, right? So yeah. I think 3D printing, and I don't really, I haven't totally wrapped my head around 3D printing, but I know that being able to create something from nothing, from an idea, is very powerful and to not have to buy it. And I'm sitting like, I've had a fucked up week. I've had a fucked up two weeks. My roaster fucking caught on fucking fire. Okay. Dang, Nasty's really dropping those F bombs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should hear me when I get off. So, the dam broke. 
Yeah, it did. <laughs> and I got to get break. all the creosote off that, and then I had to wait a goddamn week <laughs> for the part to come. And then the part came, and I put it in, and I can only go up to a certain roast level, and all my clients want dark, right? And I can't go there. So then I was like, God damn it, I have to buy another roaster because I'm done. I'm done waiting. So that's what you would buy as a coffee roaster. So yeah. I'm about to, Jack, I'm about to do a Kickstarter. I'll talk to you about that next week. But anyway, <laughs> I diverge. The point is, if I had a 3D printer and knowledge on how to use that, that wait time goes away, and that is magic. You and that if you can do it in a way that's not tracked, that's gold. So I got my one thing. I'm going to hand it off to somebody else. Well, I would just say I think, and this it sort of goes yeah. hand in hand. I would think everybody should have, uh, and of course I don't have one, but I think everyone should have an unregistered firearm. Everybody should have a means of defending themselves that the police yeah. in the state don't know about. Uh, you guys have guns? No, I don't. I lost know them all that. in a boating accident with my Bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's my pick, though. My friend told me about them before. Yeah, I got one. Um, this is something that my girlfriend and I are actively saving up for uh, a deposit for or a down payment on a on a piece of property. So I know it's hard to attain, but it can be a goal to set for the future or back to the group thing. You can go in with a group of people and lighten the, the financial burden. But I think it's really important to either own a piece of property or to have a piece of property owned or controlled by someone you trust. At not only as a bug out location, but just as a place to to live, to grow food, to experience the outdoors. And so I think that would that would be a big one. That's kind of a bigger one, you know, not just like something that you can buy next week or whatever, but it's something to that I've aspired towards for so long. And finally my business is doing better where, you know, in a, a couple of years or a year or two it may actually be a reality. So I think that's something that's critically important with with for personal liberty, having your own piece of the earth that you can call your own. Right, Jack. Like buy yourself an emergency fund. Right. So I know it seems like I'm cheating there, but like a lot of the issues that we have is things come up that we need and we don't know what those things are until we need them. So if even if it's as simple as a swear jar and Nicole would have filled hers the fuck <laughs> up tonight. Right? <laughs> Like, and you just have a, a ball jar that you throw a buck in, you know, here and there and whatever, and have that, that stockpile of cash. So instead of worrying about what do I go spend my money on, she's got her swear jar. It's full of shit. If y'all didn't see it. Um, yeah, put some more money in there, potty mouth. Anyway, um, so think as uh, people always say, you know, if I only had a hundred dollars, what would I? You better fucking save it if all you have is a hundred dollars because you don't know when you're going to need it. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, and the other thing I would say is what can you buy that can produce more than it's worth? In other words, uh, you know, I sell a membership. You could buy my membership. If you're going to buy shit. You might want to get discounts on them. And if you buy a $50 membership and then you, you save a hundred bucks this year, well, that was, that was money well spent. Now apply that elsewhere. And start thinking to yourself, if I'm going to spend this money, how do I change this so that it becomes something that I can either get an, uh, you know, a break-even ROI or a profitable ROI on? So stop worrying so much about what to buy and ask yourself what you want and then say, how do I make that profitable? So I put in ponds and I put these fish in it and, you know, there's stupid people. You can throw a 19-cent goldfish in there and 
two years later, you sell that fish on Craigslist for $50, and you call it an Asian heirloom carp. So figure out how to take the things that you already use and build some sort of, how do you make your hobbies pay for themselves and make you a little bit of money? That's When somebody asks me that question, I, the reason I say this, I always know I'm dealing with a person that has a limited amount of money. That's why they're asking that question. And so you should be more thinking about how do you, how do I generate a cash flow back than yeah. what do I buy? That, that that's really the, the essence of agorism, isn't it? On the entrepreneurial yeah. spirit and just taking value from one place and moving it somewhere else. Yeah, you'd be surprised. You plant that garden because they didn't want to say seeds or plants, but you plant a really awesome kick-ass garden. You start getting people that want to come look at it, and you're like, I don't really do tours. I'm like, can I give you some money to do it? How much money? <laughs> <laughs> You know, give me a motorcycle, which I just did. I got a nice motorcycle, and that for me is a lot of liberty. I, the idea of, uh, you know, being able to take off and just drive down the coast or up through the mountains—that's that, a really beautiful thing for me. Taking out the whole apocalypse scenarios, just just on a straight yeah. liberty. Standpoint. But there is that one motorcycle. What's it? I can't think what it's called now. Um, it's like the survivalist motorcycle. It can go anywhere. <laughs> He's locked up again. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? There's this motorcycle. Like, it can go places that no other vehicle can go, and it's lightweight, and the military originally came up with it in the 50s, but it's cool as shit. I'm sure Xavier knows what it is, but. Yeah, he'll totally bust out with that. Say it out. He's back. He's back. He's back. I'm going to have to get a Wi-Fi a second ago. Yeah. What if it's really like the uh, the Matrix, and they're actually uploading Counteroperative information into him every time he does that. He's really here to you destroy us. Build a better system, Jack. Like, yeah. I mean, we're noticing it at this point. Hey, we got a question in the uh, YouTube chat. It's a pretty simple one. How do I discourage my chickens from laying under their rooster bars? Encourage them to lay somewhere else. That would be one way. So, how would we do that, Nicole? Well, you build them this beautiful, kind of dark, calm space that's clean where they want to make a nest and you put a little wooden egg in there so that they say, Oh, there's another egg here already. Perhaps I'll lay there. And I would also pair that with look under your roosting bar and ask yourself, why is that the place they want to lay? Cause there's something about how you've built that. That's made it a place a chicken wants to lay an egg. I think the problem is that they're pooping on their eggs and they don't like it. So maybe that's they why it's from collect, yeah. collect the poop, put like a, a Poop catcher. Poop catcher. He's so the issue with that is that they they make a lot of John. Are you doing that on purpose or John locked up now? No, I was mocking. Uh, you're just faking it. <laughs> so the poop catcher idea I like, but it's also like, I mean, they make a lot of poop while they sleep, and it adds up really fast, and you're gonna have to deal with it. So my thing is. If you have a cat that's crapping in your house in a place you don't want them to do it, they're attracted to the texture. Nicole's right. They're, they like the texture. something about it. So you do something to ruin it. Like if you have a cat peeing in the corner in your house, take duct tape and, like, duct tape the area, like a cover the carpet with it. With and the trap tied up. Like it, and then they, they go back to their litter box. So do something to disturb the area that – So it's like, I don't like, I don't want to be here anymore. So instead of worrying about why they're there, make it to where they're not going to want to be there. So like, if you have a bunch of scrap PVC pipe or something, build yourself like a little, like chicken, you know, like, uh, costino wire type thing and set it there to where they're like, 
this sucks. I don't want to sit here. I've got a piece of half inch PVC sticking me in the chicken butt. And then you make the nice, comfortable place that Cole talked about elsewhere. And, you know, they'll probably go there and never underestimate the power of fake eggs, but it's totally worth sacrificing a real egg. True. Because sometimes I, I think chickens can smell better than we think they can. And so a real egg, they'll, they'll smell it. And if you're worried about like, well, then I'm going to have this one egg and it's going to be like five days old. It's going to stink or whatever. Take a Sharpie and mark it up so you know which one's the, the decoy egg. And once they start laying, you can do the wooden egg or whatever. But sometimes I found that doesn't work unless you have a real egg there first. And then the decoy eggs seem to work. Doorknobs work real well too. Yeah, my chicken roost is in the middle. So I have a pretty big coop. It's in the middle of the coop and it's all open under it. And they go back in the corners. So like if your roost is in a corner, that's the problem. Xavier, um, if you don't like hack out again, do we have any, any more questions? Cause we should probably wrap soon. Yeah, we do. Good places or states to move. If you're not tied down to any one place, it's your favorite state in the United, in the union for, uh, for freedom and agorism. Okay, can I can I just say um I, I don't Jersey think this is, is idea. what you're gonna say, right? Uh, what's that? You're gonna say New Jersey, New Jersey, right? No, of course not. This New is the last one in this place. No, no, no. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't I don't think the idea of uh like the like the free state project or seasteading or private cities this is what uh Sam Conkin called anarcho Zionism, right? And it doesn't work because it, it you rely on the moral restraint of politicians who don't have any. So if you move to New Hampshire and you join the Free State Project and uh, you're gonna you're successful and you want to secede from the federal government, there is nothing stopping these people from genociding New Hampshireites, and we know that they're willing to do it because they've done it to the people of South Carolina before. So I really think uh, moving is not really. Yeah, you're definitely you, you can increase your own personal liberty, but you can't you can't defeat the state this way. The only way to truly defeat the state is through, like we were talking earlier about Nalevo or Satyagraha or through counter economics. You know, I disagree and I agree at the same time. So I think if you're moving to join a movement, that has very limited effect to a degree. Like because if like we're all going to go here, we're all going to go there. But I think that if you live in New Jersey, which is a freaking shithole, Sal, just to be honest. I was born there, so I can say that. Um, and you can move to a state like Texas. I think that makes a lot of sense. Or a yeah. state like Tennessee or a state like Florida. And I would look more like, so what's important to you? If I'm a parent and I live in a state like Michigan and I want to homeschool, I probably want to get out of Michigan. Michigan is one of the worst states for homeschool. And if I, so if that's what's important to me and I'm thinking I want to go live next to Texas, uh, do go to live next to Jack or Nicole or John, you probably want to live next to Jack or John because Texas is a great state for homeschool. If what's really important to you is a lack of a state income tax, well then you can live next to Nicole or you can live next to Jack or John or you can go live next to Doc Bones out in Florida because all of those have that. So I think it's far more about you need to ask yourself, Will moving, and this is where Sal's getting at, will moving actually fix my problem or is it just another excuse that I'm creating another maybe in my life for so that I can claim that I don't, I don't really have a solution for myself? Well, it's a someday, really. It's someday a someday gonna, thing. So is it a real thing or is it a someday thing? off that, that, Jack, though, it's, it, that list of characteristics is really important. Um, but I think you can learn a lot from how the governors responded to COVID. 
Oh, I agree. And That's so you, I think at this point, you've got that data point. If you're going to move, look at that and go somewhere where they couldn't get their shit through. Yeah, like in South State quickly. where they like locked everybody down like Nazis and killed them. Literally. <laughs> like, Literally. I mean, Literally, yeah. And like, you know, I was fishing today and when I was in Florida, I was fishing on the beach and I went out to restaurants this last week and I went out to restaurants in April and like I had that freedom and you didn't. So that wasn't about moving here to change things. That was about this is the way things are now. And one of the few things, one of the few real liberty oriented things we have in this country, the United States, really is the concept of what's left of a republic. And that's what that movement's about. So what I'd say with that is it's not about moving somewhere to build a new life. It's about building, uh, moving somewhere for whatever's best for your life now and having that freedom of movement, movement that, that kind of nomad mindset that Tim Ferriss talks about, but within your own country. Yeah, the whole digital nomad thing. And if, if you're wealthy, you can have citizenship in different areas and have businesses and uh, legal entities and different political jurisdictions to take advantage of the tax strategy. So that's that's one thing. The answer would be not to be tied down geographically and to kind of be free to go from here to there. Uh, not, everyone, not everyone can do that. But as far as in the U.S., um, I am definitely a fan of the vote with your feet methodology. I'm also a fan of the Free State Project and really close with, with a lot of the folks up there. And I'm impressed by what they've accomplished. I have they might have two to three thousand people now that actually live up there and they have a, a couple dozen representatives that are elected in the state house. I'm not sure they have been able to elect a senator yet in the state senate. But I do know that besides the political jurisdiction and what the government says you can and can't do. So I'm with Jack and with Sal. Well, I'm with Jack on that. It's a benefit and it's not the be all end all. I think one of the most important things is live in a place where you have the strongest network. And so my ex-wife would always want to get, want to get me to move with the family down to Acapulco and stuff. Or at least if we're going to be in Texas, move away from Austin, which is turning pretty damn socialist and communist. But central Texas is where I was born and raised. And I have the strongest network, not just family and friends from high school and stuff, but the Liberty community we've been building and fostering since 2007 here. So I think being around like-minded people that are ready and willing to throw down and trade with you is, is really important. But if I were to pick three states that are, I think are good places for Liberty loving people, I would say Texas is one of them. A lot of people, a lot of independent mindset, relatively economic, economically free. Um, and Texas is the state that probably has the best chances if it were to secede. Not, you know, who knows how that would all pan out, but Texas has its own energy grid, has its own uh, ports. So Texas, Fine capacity, agricultural capacity, everything. Yeah. And uh, oil boom, you know, it's a boom yeah. state. Montana is a great state where there's already a lot of free patriot type folks. They have very limited government. There's not a lot going on out there. There's not any big major cities. So that's another good one. And then back to props to New Hampshire. They, there was a whole process where they picked New Hampshire specifically because of uh, the ability to influence the legislature, uh, the relative economic freedom and social freedom. Um, so I think New Hampshire, and there's, and it's built in with a ton of liberty activists that are active and, and doing things and a bunch of agorists as well, especially in the Keene area with the Keeneyaks as they call them. So that's, that's my thoughts on that. If it wasn't so cold and I didn't have family here, I'd already live somewhere near Keene. I would, yeah. I would just say that. Yeah, I'd still live in the holler. 
one more point to the contrary. Um, uh oh. Uh oh. All right. We need more of this. I, I know we have to wrap okay, up. Okay, Sal, push. I know we have to wrap him. up. So I'll, I'll keep it quick. <laughs> but I, you know, I, the one thing I, I think you should, you should add is that you, you don't really run from a bully, right? You're not supposed to run from a bully because that that, that doesn't stop them. I think you should really uh, stand up to them. Uh, the other thing too I would add is that as agorists, we can't be effective in places where uh, the laws are in our favor. To be effective as a counter-economist, you have to be in a place where there is a black and gray market. So if you're in a place where, in other words, if I, let's say, I mean, you know, I guess if I, a 3D printer isn't as counter-economically, there's, there's, there isn't as much potential there in a place like Texas as there is in a place like New York or Albany or something like that. So I guess that would just be the final point uh, on that on that note. Should you be frustrated if you were in a stateless society, Wait, Sal? Because there's no terrorism. No, yeah. that you're not you to China. unless you live somewhere well, then, shitty. Well, then, you then, know then, what? Move to Somalia. <laughs> <laughs> now, like, so, like, let me just like counter that with. So you say you don't run from a bullet. Bully, I was bully. trained by the military, and let me tell you, you absolutely fucking do run from bullets. And the first thing not you a do bullet. is cover. Bully. I said bull. Oh, bully! I think that I have nothing. No, run from a bullet. Run like hell from a bullet. Yeah, run from bullets. I thought you said run from. Okay, run from a bully. Well, the government bullies are going to have guns. Guns, right? So, and it's very important to have what's known as a fallback position when you're dealing with a combat engagement. And so we come back to our fallback position. We reassess from there, and then we figure out how to go on the offensive. And so, for me, the strategic relocation concept is a lot like that. So I really want to know why I'm making that move. And then, you know, I would say that the benefit to this, countering this view, is wherever you go, I promise you there's plenty of statism. Like, so what you're saying is too little statism. If I find that place, I'll move there, and then I'll let you know if it's worth worrying about. Right now, there's plenty of statism in Texas. There's plenty of gray market opportunity in Texas. Um, Maybe it's not to make... 30 round magazines with a 3D printer. Maybe it's something else, but there's, you can ask John, there's plenty of opportunity here. The federal government's it has dominion over every single state in the union. And there's definitely stuff to skirt when it comes to the income tax, especially. Yeah. And if I can skirt state income tax, that that's a big one for me. I don't want to live in a state. I can't that imagine taxes what's left after they already taxed what I no. I don't even know what that's no. like. Wow. No, screw that. No, I'm not paying a tax to. And I think your state, Sal, that you could see. That's the thing. So geographic arbitrage isn't just about freedom. It's about just straight up money, which leads to freedom. So if I live in a state that's taking 12 percent of my fucking money, and I can move to another state. And they don't take 12% of my fucking money. I just gave myself a 12% fucking raise. And the more money I make, the more money that raise equals. And with changes to the tax code, I don't even get to deduct the money that the state steals from me anymore. So, no, I I don't know what you pay in state income tax, Sal, but... Zero. Zero. I absolutely (laughs) refuse to pay. I've never paid state income tax a day in my life. And I never... That a boy. That a boy. Good job. There you this go. Is the model. One day we'll be mounting it as well. How to not pay taxes in New Jersey? You just don't earn anything, right? Don't do it. Just don't <laughs> I don't do have it. any money. Right? Done. But he's lying. He does pay state taxes in in, in New Jersey because sales tax. Yeah, and that's and where John and I we get burned because our state sales tax is pretty high, actually. Right. What but is it in Texas? They tax every five. mother. Trust me, in New Jersey, that motherfuckers tax everything. 
Oh yeah. I was I was a baby when I left and I had to pay a tax to get out. I mean, like just get over the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. It was like thousand dollars to get a baby out of fucking New Jersey. New Jersey Ooh. is sucks. Yeah. And what about you, Nicole? You're living in New York, so Am I answering the state question? Yeah. Yeah. State question. I know where she'd go. Well, I mean, I know where I am. Um, yeah. but I actually would move to another state if the lifestyle was right for me. So I assess it more like, how's my lifestyle? And that's the big picture. How yeah. are, how are the taxes? What's the regulatory environment? And does it allow me to live the way I want to live right now? Tennessee does that. But I'm not opposed to moving to Texas or somewhere else. I don't think there is one best state. I think you need to make your own decision based on the life you want to live. Exactly. That's it. Um, yeah. yeah. If you had, if you had, you, you don't have kids. If you had kids, you might think Texas is a better state because it's easier to homeschool. Yeah. It's pretty easy to homeschool here. You just sign up for the farm and they have no requirements and that's okay. your mother school and then you're done. But yeah, you're, you're much more free in the homeschool environment. Texas. Florida, the Dakotas, and then, you know, North Carolina's my, my bug out situation. I, I'm just waiting for Oregon to melt down. I might go back there. Who knows? You know what so, sucks is the best states to live in are the worst states to live in. Right. Like if you said like, I want like, okay, I want to, I want to feed myself. What's the best state to live in? Southern California. Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii. Hawaii. I, you could drop me off in the middle of the jungle in Hawaii and come back and be like, we left him there for like four weeks. I hope he's alive. They come back. That motherfucker got fat. Right. Like, like I mean, like, point. you you put me in a jungle. So like, I guess Florida would be another state like that. But Florida is not as cool as Hawaii. It just is. No, it's not. But like, you want to rank states on freedom from economic and a lot of other states. Like Hawaii is at the bottom. Like it is bad. Gun freedom sucks. Everything sucks. But if you wanted a state that you could just live in and like feed yourself. But my counter to that would be Florida. Florida, Florida probably, if you're looking at it that way, is the freest state that you can also feed yourself in. Uh, that guy, what's his name, Rob Greenfield, when he did his one year of 100% off the land, like yeah. this guy, like if he was going to have salt on his salad, he went to the ocean and, and like evaporated water. When he said everything, he meant like Gandhi. everything. And he, cho- <laughs> he chose Florida. I had him on my show, and when I pushed him on it, there was a reason. He did the math on all the states, and it was the one state where he could live in a tiny house in somebody's backyard and not get thrown in jail and also have that kind of hunter-gatherer lifestyle off the land. So I know everybody thinks, like, Montana, Wyoming, whatever. Six months of winter sucks. I'm just saying, like, it does, you know. If you want to look at – so that's back to what Nicole was saying. What what about your lifestyle? If you want to live as a forager, you want to live somewhere where there's a jungle or a swamp. Well, if you're I mean, willing, Appalachia are you willing is pretty good as a forager frog too, eggs, Jack. Frog legs, right? Then you, you, if you starve to death in Louisiana, you deserve to starve to death. I'll just say that, right? So you have to look at what it is that you want. You want homeschool? Do you want to be able to feed yourself? Do you want you want to live off grid? If you want to live off grid, believe it or not, living in the north is better because it's really easy to heat with wood. And then you have this really long solar aspect, these really long days. So it's actually easier to be off-grid in Montana than it is to be off-grid in Texas because running an air conditioner for nine months a year with solar panels is a bitch. So you have to, like Nicole said, look at your whole total desire. 
Yeah, Appalachia is really good for hunter-gatherer slash a little bit of cultivating. It's why the Cherokees did so well there. West yep. Virginia, Western yeah, PA. I mean, I, I've learned so much about plants by moving to Tennessee that I'm like, Whoa. Western North Carolina where Xavier doesn't really live because he doesn't yeah. want to do it now. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the, the, the state there is not very great, right? North Carolina, you've got state tax. You've got all kinds of intrusions there. That, it, But for a hunter-gatherer kind of living off the grid thing, it's great. Yeah, I gotta dip out, guys. The girlfriend's watching the kiddos. I gotta put them to bed. All right. Have a good night, John. We'll wrap it up. Sounds good. That was a great, great questions, everybody. Thanks for uh, bringing those questions to us, um, both in the Telegram group and on YouTube. What? We have a Telegram group? Yeah, it's uh, Unloose the Goose, and I guess we'll put that link in the in the YouTube. I'll, I'll go through the yeah. YouTube channel and start cleaning it up and put links in there. Unloose the Goose. We'll take no views. Your paradigm's run out of time, and we've got no use.